Hi there, everybody, and welcome back to Investing Transformed. Paul Craig here, and I'm going to continue my rather selfish outlook in terms of interviews of great friends and colleagues over the last 20 years. I have another one today in Todd Edgar. And Todd, I'll allow you to sort of introduce yourself and your career, but you've had a distinguished career in, in, in running investment banking, prop desks, running hedge funds, and, and now developing your, your sort of your third phase of your career, which is your own, your own family office. So I'm going to get you just to introduce yourself a little bit. You're you're probably most well known as a commodities commodity investor slash macro, predominantly commodities. But mate, why don't you walk a little bit about what got you here today? And for those of you who are listening on the podcast, Todd is not wearing a jacket and tie as he would be in the investment banking world. He's in full family office attire, which is completely relaxed in a very comfortable chair, enjoying life, which is all where we all need to be. So. Mate, tell us how you transitioned from suit and tie to the comfy, the comfy chair and T-shirt. Oh, well, thanks for, thanks for the intro, mate. Although the, the use of uh, past tense with uh, a lot of things there is a little concerning. But um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, transition, which is a, obviously a, a popular word for a lot of things these days. So yeah, my background was sort of somewhat traditional on the, on the asset management side. I started in the early 90s at a bank. That was back when banks used to take uh, reasonably unfettered risk. So sort of uh, you know, taking macro risk has, has always been something I've sort of been to a certain extent trained to do, although training might be a, a stretch. So spent you know, close to a, a decade working on that side of things, then spent another sort of 15 plus years both working for various different buy-side firms, or actually one, one main buy-side firm, which is Tudor, then went back to banks to run prop desk for a while. And then uh, post Dodd-Frank spun out of that and started my own fund. You mentioned commodities in terms of uh, that was frankly more of a sort of a publicity thing than anything. I've always been a fairly broad, a broad macro person. And it's interesting as I'm sort of uh, transitioning that word again to what I'm doing now, getting, trying to get even broader. I spent about a decade running a sort of, I guess, what ultimately ended up being a multi-billion dollar macro fund called Atrius Capital. And then about three years ago, sort of realized I had really been enjoying that side of things for, for a while. And when I say that side of things, I mean, the sort of business, the business running side of things and to a, to a lesser extent, the, the investor running side of things. So I took a fairly well-trodden path and sort of gave all the investors their money back and, uh, and sort of downsized. I spent the last sort of two, three years running uh, a family office, Atrius Family. And as I mentioned, sort of one of the interesting things about going from running a hedge fund to running a family office is, is when you're running a hedge fund, you, you, you tell investors a certain story when that's sort of the basis of which, with which they invest with you, which makes perfect sense. And then here's what we are, here's what we do, here's the product sets we, we do things in, and, and, and here's how we hope to generate alpha. And it was, it was an interesting change in terms of in that you know, going from sort of to a certain extent, uh, you know, I wouldn't say pigeonholing, that's a bit, that's a bit, a bit harsh, but you know, pigeonholing oneself into, into that to, to being you know, really unconstrained on, on, the, on the family office side. That's my capital. I can do, do what I want with and then sort of starting to rethink, you know, rethink some assumptions one makes about sort of why do you do this, why do you do that, and then you know, how do you allocate capital? So that's been a really interesting, for me at least, an interesting Sort of journey in the last couple of years, and it's you know, one I think I'm probably still very much in the early stages of. So that's me, mate. So I, I think that you know, you've had I, I would say sort of not distinct periods, but you've had sort of distinct areas where you've run capital. You've run it at you know, large hedge funds, be that be that on Tudor on the Tudor platform or with with Atris itself. You've been in the in in the confines of investment banking and, and the pigeonholing that you get with there and and now with the sort of the sort of the you know realm being unconstrained in the in the family office side of things. But talk a little bit about the mindset shifts that you have had to make. Let's you know let's start with the mindset shift from prop bank prop to hedge fund, right? Talk a little bit about how you think about that because let's face it, the world is littered with failed hedge fund managers who were successful prop traders at banks. Yeah, yeah. What did they not get right in the aggregate? Uh, that's a tough one. I think that, you know, if you think about the sort of trend, again, that word transition in terms of in that the, the, the fact that the world is littered with 
people who were at a bank prop desk and you know did very well and then sort of started a hedge fund and went to work at a hedge fund and did, did not so well. I think there's even a bigger group of people who went from being superstar market maker thinking that you know they were the guy making all the money to prop desk or hedge fund and and failing there. I think that's an even bigger sort of a group of people. And I I would put myself in one of those in that person in that category in terms of in the, you know, moving from from that to a hedge fund that was it was I found very challenging. And I think the the sort of the the main thing I found was psychological. And what I mean by that is that if you're running a market making desk and then you know moving to a and I'll use this as an example because it illustrates the 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 prop to hedge fund one as well. If you're running a market making desk and then all of a sudden you're moving to a prop desk, you're much more exposed. And what I mean by that is in terms of in the the, the, the example of market making desk is customer flow and you probably you walk in every morning and you sort of got some some money in the team which you can then take risk on. Whereas if you're running, if you're working a prop desk, you, you walk in every morning and it's just you. That being said, there's probably only, you've only got one boss and probably some certain access to certain information that might be somewhat advantageous to you, even if you don't recognize that. So making that transition is difficult. So then from the prop desk, may they rest in peace, to a hedge fund, that's again another level of exposure. So especially if you're the guy with your name on the door, there's really no hiding. You're going to have investors talking to you every day about you know, what you just did wrong and there's, you know, the, or perhaps even more damage, far less frequent, how wonderful you are when you get it right. And I think what that does is exposes, unless you've got a very robust trading process or investment process, it can expose that pretty quickly. And then also, as I, as I said right at the start of this, unless you've got a very robust psychology you'll get exposed again, I think. And I say this as someone who, you know, who failed at this. And it was, you know, I was lucky enough to run a reasonably successful firm for nearly a decade. That last five years was tough, man. I was, I was really, you know, I wasn't really enjoying it. And obviously there are, you know, there are people out there who, who do a better job of dealing with those pressures than I did. But yeah, you know, so it's, it's that level of psychological exposure and how you almost sort of, it gets ratcheted up, you know, continually ratcheted till you almost sort of the Drucker idea of the Peter principle where you're promoted to your own level of incompetence. This is almost you get promoted to your level of psychological discomfort that eventually it breaks you. Right. So, man, I, I know the answer to this question because I know currently I can make an assumption that this is the happiest you've been in your career professionally, right? <laughs> um, but prior, apart from running your own, your own family office, I mean, all the benefits that gives with family and your own, the time being your own and not having investors to answer for and all that sort of stuff. What model made you happiest? And again, you and I talk about the psychological stuff like this a lot. I think having that being in a good place is really important. In 100%. 100%. So where was the, that best place for you? Probably, I would say two places, bizarrely, both banks. My very first job at uh, Bankers Trust in Australia was an amazing uh, period of time for my career in terms of in that, and there was a couple of things that led to that, or a few things that led to that. Most obvious was people in terms of in that, that desk, I would say, you know, 30 years later, we're still great friends. We were just, which we've spent, you know, a bit of time last night organizing a ski trip before I jumped on with you. I was on a video call with another friend of mine from that period. So, you know, having people around you uh, who you like and who are also equally motivated to do well, I think is incredible. And obviously that was a, also an amazing learning experience as well. And then probably the other time for me was JP Morgan running the, the, the macro prop desk there uh, again. And that was very people-based. I had you know, some amazing people working with me, for me, around me, and you know, really, really enjoyed working with them. And I think that's also an element of, of again, that psychological buffer if you like in terms of in that there wasn't sort of it, did, it never felt particularly pressured although towards the end of it it did which is part of the reason why I took, took part of the team and left and very simply also if you're doing well it feels good like <laughs> just, just, just you know, take, take a truism in terms of if you're and that's investing I mean if you think about anyone you, you talk to who's an investor when 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 things are going you have to sort of I would argue you have to 
almost modulate both ends of this. And things are never as good as you think they are when they're going well, and things are probably never as bad as you think they are when they're going badly. If you're doing well, life's good. Like, and then I, I think one last little point I'd make about that, there's an element of sort of, I guess, essentialism, if you like, around as you go through these experiences, and more often the bad ones, I think, than the good ones, as you go through these experiences and when they're painful, it makes you really think about, well, you know, what do I like doing here? You know, why am I? And maybe if you're fortunate enough to, to get to, a, you know, there's almost a Maslow hierarchy of needs type thing when it comes to investing and investing jobs, where you know, once you've got that sort of base of, I know what I'm doing, I'm happy with my process, I might be sort of somewhat financially secure. You know, why am I doing this for? What's, what's the point of being at this? Why am I waking up in the morning? And that's obviously there's a positive and a negative aspect of that. The, the positive is I'm waking up in the morning doing this because I love doing it and it's exciting and it's intellectually stimulating. I get to talk to good people and all that sort of stuff. Whereas the negative on that might be that I don't like running a business. I'm not very good at that. Or you know, for me, an example of that would be you know, repeated investor meetings exacerbate my insecurities, that sort of stuff. So then you sort of think about, well, Okay, I'm going to strip out, well, maybe I'm going to, hopefully if I'm, I have the position to, or the, the ability to strip out the bad and then reinforce the good, happy days. And that's sort of what you've, what you, and that's a, obviously a journey too, because it's not a static target. Right. But mate, you and I have a similar role with our respective businesses that we're both the head of IT. As in neither one of us, neither one of us has the investment banking infrastructure behind us, right? How important or how essential to you in terms of your process was the infrastructure you had when you had Atrius and the like, and obviously I assume you had a fantastic infrastructure with JP Morgan and Tudor and the like. So how important was that to your process back then and how is your process adapted now that you don't have that enormous infrastructure behind you? This is probably not quite the answer you're hoping for, but like it was never particularly important. In terms of in that, you know, I, I do have a, some systematic strategies that I run, but I can build those on a spreadsheet. So it's not, what I'm doing is not particularly fancy. I do have sort of one person who works for me full-time now who looks after that sort of stuff. So, you know, without him, that would be problematic, but it works. And then the other thing I'd say is that so much of, you know, what has changed now, you've written a lot about this, is that so much, think about a Bloomberg machine literally in front of me here that has more information than the Rewind 20 years than anyone could have ever imagined 20 years ago. And then on a more granular level, I even think about, so as a, a bit of background, I set up a, a hedge fund, I guess, 12 years ago now. And then what I thought I would do is just sort of keep that structure and turn it into a family office three years ago. And as it turned out, that wasn't possible because I had some junior partners and it was all a bit of a mess. I had to actually redo the whole thing. And it was actually a really interesting process in that the, the amount of time and effort it took up to set up all that sort of, you know, not just technology, but also legal and all that sort of stuff 12 years ago was exponentially harder than doing it all again two years ago because uh, the, the industry has become far more, I guess, to a certain extent, standardized. Uh, so you can plug and play. You can you know, call up a lawyer and say, hey, write me an ISDA and they'll write you an ISDA. Like, whereas before it was like, oh, well, we need a special customized ISDA. I think that's sort of true for technology now as well. If I think about it, to give you another concrete example, I don't need a heck of a lot in risk management systems. I currently use Bloomberg as my risk management system. That didn't exist 12 years ago. So we spent an enormous amount of time, sub well, actually subcontracting testing various different systems and picking them. And, you know, also from a cost standpoint, if you know, what I was paying 10, 12 years ago used to be 100, what I use now is 10, and then rewind that 10 years even before that. So back when I was at the banks, you know, you know, we built risk systems because they didn't, you couldn't buy them. And that cost 10 times more than that again, and the, the, the amount of also the maintenance around that. So I think the way the, the world has evolved, if you like, in terms of things becoming much more able to plug and play and therefore much cheaper and much more scalable has really helped the sort of business structure I have now, which you know, maybe 10 years ago would have, been, would have been more challenging. Got it. 
So that's sort of the last backward-looking question I'll, I'll ask. But again, hedge funds close. They they close for a variety. They close for a variety of reasons, right? Some close for performance reasons. Some reasons for they just run they run their course. Talk about the lessons that you took away personally when the fund closed, and and you made this decision to to transition towards the family office. And what and what lessons from the hedge fund from the hedge fund model have you taken? Constructive lessons from the hedge fund model have you taken, and negative into into the family office realm. And so, well, I, I guess I was just to, I was just to quote this to investors. Actually, I think it was Jim Callahan, who was the Prime Minister of England at some point, and he used to he made a comment once that all politics end in failure. And I used to always sort of half jokingly say that all hedge funds end in failure too. And it was in that one way or another, and you know that was that was true. And if I think about sort of there's there's a couple of different elements to your question around was a, a, a lot of different elements to that question actually. So in terms of you can think about that from a, a personal standpoint as also from an as also from an investing standpoint in terms of this is not the first time I've asked this question and this sort of my little pithy answer to you know why you know how do I feel about doing what I'm doing now versus doing what I was doing before being a CEO, founder, blah, 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 of a multi-billion dollar hedge fund is a quite a sort of status thing. And so I think about now, you know, my pithy comment is what I'm doing now is, is way worse for my ego, but way better for my soul <laughs> to a certain extent. And I think that's sort of, <laughs> I, I, you know, a good little one-liner for, for that. And the other thing I sort of say about the hedge fund is I'm, I'm very happy I did it, but I'm also very happy I'm not doing it anymore, uh, which is another one <laughs> little comments on that. So, but that being said, it's an incredible... It's an incredible experience because what again, and I touched on this with one of my other answers, that it is a there's an element of essentialism there. Then it makes you really think about what is important to you as a person, and you uh, you uh, what's important to you as an investor, and they, those two things may have some overlap, or they may have no overlap. Mm-hmm. So, in, in answer to the other part of your question around what have you taken from things, again, there's a there's a personal side of that. There's an investing side of that. There is some overlap to both of those in that on the, on the personal side of things first. You know, I think you have to, you know, if I think about sort of you're running, running your own hedge fund for a lot of investors, sort of that's the pinnacle of things. I mean, where do, where do you sort of say, where do you go from that? And I think when I say I'm happy I'm not doing it anymore, I think if I never tried, that would always be in the, back of, in the back of your head on both a personal level and an investing level. And you think about whenever things go wrong, once again, investing personal, you're always like, oh, fuck, I wish I had done, you know, I wish I had done the, you know, the, the, you do the, the sort of stupid counterfactual, which is you sort of cherry pick, you know, the best parts of whatever that, that, that alternative is, and then sort of substitute that into whatever's going wrong with your life at the moment or your investing process at the time and say, oh, if only I had done that. So I think there's, you know, an element I would, there's an element of having having done what I've done. There's no opportunity cost. I mean, in terms of there's no, I can't sit there and say, well, geez, if I was, I wish I had been running a hedge fund or working a hedge fund because it would have, and it would have been X, Y, and Z, which it probably wouldn't have been, by the way. But like that's what you, that's what you immediately think. Having done that, I can sort of say, well, you know what? That's I can tick that box and, and move on. And then on the on the personal side of things, I've also just to finish on the personal side of things, I've also sort of touched on that a little bit as well. In that, you know, you just sort of think about what you like doing and what you don't. And a lot of times, you can't know that until you've tried it. So for me, I always sort of thought I want. It's interesting. My my father has, has always been started out as an engineer and then ended up going to management. And my dad is a great manager, like a phenomenally awesome manager. He's very personal. Everyone loves him. He makes tough decisions and all those qualities of a good manager. I don't have any of those qualities in terms of I'm not, I thought I could sort of develop them or work at it, but, you know, I'm just not very good at it and I don't really like doing it. So to contrast that to investing that may or may not be good at, but I, at least I love doing. I, I will, the cliche of sort of, if you enjoy your job, every you never have to work a day in your life. I, I would say I jump out of bed every morning. I'm up every morning. I'm excited about what the day brings. I want to learn. I want to read. I want to improve myself as an investor. Whereas that was, you know, management was like, oh, it was just a chore. Now, it's easy for me to say now having tried, you know, having tried it, but unless you try it, maybe you don't know. 
And that's sort of true. You know, I can tick off a bunch, which I'll, in the interest of time I won't do, but I can tick off a bunch of things that go into running a hedge fund where maybe maybe you find your calling. I mean, maybe, oh, who, you, know, as, you know, for another quick example, found out uh, I found that talking to investors was not a good thing for my investment process. But I actually quite enjoyed doing it and it turned out I wasn't actually awful at it. So, so that was something that was a surprise. So, and, and actually a, and a positive surprise. So it's not just the negative. So then on the investment side of things, I've already touched on a couple of those things in terms of I think that you know, if you're working for a fund or running a fund, your focus gets very narrow. And that's not a criticism either, because if you think about you're sitting in front of an investor, an investor saying, I'm a macro fund, here's where I fit in your portfolio. And that's sort of the story you should be telling, because if you're trying to market yourself to, to have them invest with you, you, know, you want to be thinking about what framework they're using and try and fill a need in that framework. In doing so, and I use crypto as an example, I'm not massively involved in crypto. I have a small crypto allocation. I'm thinking about it a lot. I couldn't have never in a million years done that running a fund because that's not, I mean, maybe a little more so now, but back when one should have been doing it, which was sort of three to five years ago, you would have got laughed out of the room. You just couldn't do it. And then you can, that's an extreme example. That narrowness of focus, it was certainly not a, not a good thing. And, and it, also, it's, it also plays to, it plays to your own psychology as well in that I think, you know, well, maybe it's just me, but I think you know, people are sort of fundamentally lazy and don't want to necessarily do the hard work to think about new things, whereas investing, you probably should be doing that. You should be, you know, what am I missing? What am I, what's the new thing? And that's not, it's, it's much better, to, you know, much more comfortable to stay in your comfort zone, which is why it's called a comfort zone, I guess. If you're working in an environment that makes you do that and actually reward you for doing it, that's probably not necessarily uh, something that you, you, you can get very comfortable doing that and you, you want to try and break that habit, I guess. And I could, uh, the, on the investment side of things, I could give you a, I could fill up the next half hour talking about it. So I'll, I'll just use that as a, one example in the, in, the, in, the, in the interest of time, but there's a lot. I could take an hour to just explore what you just explored then, but I want to take up one point about, about thinking about new things, right? So two-part question. One, how much time do you spend thinking about new things? And for those of you who aren't on the, or on the podcast, Todd has a stack of books that look precariously like they're about to tumble behind his head, which is probably about 5% of the books that Todd has in his house, because I know you do spend a lot of time, sort of, a lot of time reading. But how much time do you spend thinking about new things? And can you think about new things and not focus on private and venture capital investing? I guess I'd, I'd answer the question with a question in terms of in that, is there a clear, bright line delineation between old things and new things? And I would argue the answer is no. In terms of in that, you know, maybe there is this sort of come down from the clouds or you know, angel singing sort of new thing, but usually it's more evolution than revolution. So now I think I could be saying that to be somewhat self-serving because I think about you mentioned reading. I do read a lot, but it's not uh, most of it's background. So in terms of what you're trying to do, I used to use the analogy with investors that if I think about you know my view of the world is like a rubber band ball. There's rubber band, the balls are made of a rubber band. So what you what you're doing by reading and thinking is constantly either adding or subtracting rubber bands. And and how those you know, to, to really stretch the metaphor, how those rubber bands sort of go together, what will be sort of how you sort of have your, to a certain have your, your, your eureka moments. But they're less eureka moments and more just like, you know, more of a, for me at least, a gradual, a gradual thing. And then in terms of you mentioned things like on the private side of things, and again, thinking about evolution rather than revolution when it comes to new things, I always sort of think, and there's a happy medium here. So if you think about on one end of the spectrum, there is this is what I do and this is what I will continue to do. And the other end of the spectrum is like, I don't know anything about this, but fuck it, I'm going to do it. There's probably something in the middle where like I want to be doing things consistent with things that I know and feel comfortable with, but not just keep doing the same thing over and over again. And the example I would use with that is that, you know, I get sort of, as I'm sure you do, all sorts of sort of private 
you know, you know, private sort of opportunities, for want of a better word, that you know that, that people send to me. I always sort of think, well, if you're saying this to me, like little family office with zero private experience, think about all the people who passed on this before it got to me. I mean, so I'm, I'm the, you know, I'm the, I'm the cliched idiot in the card game who doesn't know who the idiot is. But that being said, there is an enormous amount of opportunity there. So how do you sort of, how do you make, how do you, how do you not be the idiot at the card game yet not miss, not miss opportunities? So for me, the answer is uh, a combination of obviously using people that I know and trust to either co-invest with or give money to. So, you know, making external applications or just really doing things gradually. And I, you know, my, my, my journey in crypto is a great example of that where you know, I've, I've been involved for a few years. I've you know, had a small allocation that I continue to grow. I'm continuing to learn. And you know, one day, I, one day I'll, I won't be the idiot of the card game, hopefully. Well, but I, have, I, have a, I have a buddy of mine who shall remain nameless who has helped me out tremendously through that precisely what you said. And his thing is offering up secondary secondary stakes in pre-IPO companies, right? So when when Ant Group was all going wrong, suddenly I was getting emails saying, I've got a source on $100 million worth of stock in Ant Group and $100 million worth of stock in ByteDance pre-IPO. That's the, and that was precise at the time. I yep. knew that the tech clampdown was coming because if I'm getting offered this stuff, he's offered it to 15 people before, before me. Yeah, and, and you've got to be careful as well because you will remember ones like, oh, I should have done that. I remember one of the big ones was like, I think about 10 years ago, someone offered me a 1% stake in the Yankees of all things. And I'm like, how would I, you know. How the fuck did you, sorry, how the fuck did you say no to that? Well, but it was like, it was, it was, the credit, it was 15, it was, you know, to give numbers, it was 15 million bucks for 1% of the Yankees. And I'm like, what does this actually get me? And they're like, well, nothing. And I'm like, how do I liquid, how would I ever monetize this? And they're like, well, if it ever gets sold, I'm like, nah. I didn't have the money anyway, and it was like, yeah, that was a bad call. That would have been that would have been a good one, but well, but still a very liquid asset, right? That's, yeah, that's exactly. Liquid. And also, what the hell do I know? I mean, is it valued? Well, well, I don't know. Like, that, but that's why I remember. You better get a skybox for that, right? Well, I, I, I don't even got that. I think it was just you could sort of. <laughs> it was more of a bragging thing. You say, "Oh, I'm a part owner of the Yankees." Like now, the Yankees are probably worth about five billion dollars now, so that would have gone up a factor of four. But then again, again, there's a opportunity cost. I mean, you could have invested in a hell of a lot of things that you know, 10 years ago that have gone up by a factor of four as well. So, you know, seems, and that's, and that's, and that's a good example of how your mind cherry picks and, and, and sort of doesn't do you any favors. Because I, I remember that because it's like, that's the Yankees. And like, it also went up a lot, you know, went up fourfold. What I don't remember is the fact I could have bought Bitcoin back then and it's gone up 10,000 fold. You know, that wasn't an offer and it wasn't something. So you got to, you got to be careful of that sort of stuff. So, but just on that, just on the point on the point of crypto in terms of your journey to where you are with this today. I mean, I tend to think that the real opportunity in crypto is in the traditional sort of in the picks and shovels part of the the equation. And let's let's face it, you, you know, if you call you call Ethereum the ultimate picks and shovels, I can make I think I can definitely make that argument, right? But so for me, I I look at you know the the coins and the tokens are one thing. The infrastructure and the backbone and the and and where it's taking DeFi and the like is something else. Uh, but talk a little bit about again, in terms of where you would allocate, you know, your own time and resources. What part of the of the of the blockchain crypto infrastructure would you be? Where would you be positioning yourself? Well, again, this gets blurred back to what what's my edge to a certain extent, like in terms of in that. So if I think about, you mentioned about the stack, that's the way I've been thinking about it as well, in that there is, I'll use the, the more of a finance metaphor, you know, Bitcoin as it stands now is gold. Ethereum, Solana, Cardano, all those other ones are like a futures exchange or a stock exchange. And then all the tokens are the stocks. So if I think about what's my edge on this stuff, so do I want to be long gold? I probably do. So I can allocate some capital to Bitcoin and sort of be comfortable with that as a, Sort of a you know, as, as a philosophy through that prism. Yeah, there's a lot of people making the argument now. It's why you know gold has underperformed so much in the last number of years. Is exactly for that reason because people are making that exact same metric, and the capital that used to go to gold is now going to Bitcoin. And I can I got a lot of time for that argument. Then the sort of the next layer of the stack 
The next level of stack is, is your, your, your point, picks and shovels. To my analogy, the futures exchange or the stock exchanges. So do you believe, I guess, do you believe that there is a there there? Do you believe that decentralized, not just finance, but decentralized whatever, tokenization of whatever is something that has utility? I do believe that. I think, well, I think there is, well, I'm not a, an absolutist. I think there is a good probability that that is true. So therefore, I want to own building blocks of that. Which one? I don't know. Is it, is it Solana? Is it Ethereum? And I can, I can you know, do research and learn about the pluses and minuses, et cetera, et cetera. And then, and then invest accordingly. Then in terms of the, the next level of the stack, which is the, the NFTs, the, all the other stuff like that, the various different, different coins, tokens on that, that's where I wouldn't say I get lost a little bit because I think there is a there there as well. It's just I'm not a stock picker, for example. I don't trade single stocks. And I think tokens are, are, are very much analogous to single stocks. So do I have the, the, the sort of wherewithal to have any sort of edge in buying and selling that stuff? Yeah, debatable. Mm-hmm. I'd make one last comment around, and this is proving to be way more difficult to set up than I hoped or thought it would be. But one of the other things that I think I may have an edge in is that I've been trading derivatives for 30 years, I guess, and I'm still pretty active in that. So do I, as a 30-year veteran of derivatives markets, have some sort of edge in crypto derivatives? Maybe I do. So I'm sort of also focusing on that. So, So getting back to how I would frame the answer to your question, my approach to this is very much a, you know, well, I guess to what extent do I believe, and that's an allocation question as a, as a totality in terms of in the, do I think there's a there there? Yes, I do. How much do I want to allocate of my capital and time to this? A little bit, not, you know, not an enormous amount, but a little bit. And then getting back to, okay, based on my understanding of the, of the, of the, of the universe there, where can I best deploy that capital and time given what I think my skill set is? And that's where we're at. Yeah, but I think, and I think that there is one fundamental difference here because you, if you use the analogy of, of the futures exchanges and stock exchanges and the tokens being the underlying stocks, I think that the NYSE couldn't operate without the underlying stocks. The NYSE is the underlying stocks, you could argue. Where I don't know if the the infrastructure of 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 blockchain does needs tokens i think it can operate itself without having it's a stock exchange that can run without stocks yes so i don't know if you need to have the stocks because the the problem is i think about i think about them less and in the pure nft sense i think about that less as securities with and again putting my 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 hat on saying that a stock is an income generative business model unto itself, I think of more of the NFTs as contemporary art, right? So, and, and a view, I don't know if, 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 my, if my son's scribbles worth nothing or a $115 million basket. Yep. And, that's, and that for me makes the, the area of NFTs in particular very cloudy for me because I don't, I don't know if there's any way to ever inherently value them outside of what someone else is willing to pay for them. Well, and that's not a valuation. Aren't you just giving an example of a very narrow use case in terms of in this? So yeah, I get that crypto punk is worth whatever the hell crypto punk's worth. And that's just that exactly right. That's just all you're doing is buying a, a share of an art thing. But getting back to the 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 whole idea of tokenization and NFT does not have to be on a some stupid digital drawing could be on a building. I mean, like, there's no reason no. like, no, it hasn't got there yet. But, you know, I remember having a conversation with a, actually, a mutual friend of ours who sent me an email, this is like six months ago, about like some new token that was issued and was immediately valued at a billion, had a cap of a million a billion dollars. And, you know, him saying, ha ha, isn't this stupid? And I was like, that was my original response too. But then I thought, well, hang on a sec, maybe the underlying asset in this case, it wasn't. But mate, what if the underlying asset is the Empire State Building? I mean, like, which case, a billion dollars is too way too cheap. Like, so, uh, so I think when people think about NFTs, and again, I think there's so many category errors that are made when it comes to crypto. Yeah. I mean, I, as an example, I always use is 
if I ever read a newspaper article where they talk about crypto as a as a as a monolithic thing, unless they're talking about literally the blockchain, yeah, I just stop reading because that's just a stupid. It's like me saying, "What do you think about futures? Are they going to go up?" I'm like, "Well, <laughs> that's just a stupid. It's just a it's an utterly nonsensical question." And it was actually really interesting. I, I usually quite like this person, but this is maybe six months ago. Bill Maher, of all people, did a uh, takedown on crypto and his like end of show monologue. And it was just one of those things I was watching with my wife and she's like, well, we've got crypto, shouldn't we, shouldn't we be worried about this? And I'm like, I, I, I can't even actually argue against what he's saying because he's using the words wrong. The, you know, the words don't mean what he thinks they mean. Like, so it's just not even a, you can't even have a, it wasn't even something I could argue for or against. So I think there's, a, there's still a lot of that. And you make the argument, and you know, I think also about the friction around, you know, for me as a, as a, you know, as a, as a U.S. resident, <coughs> kind of U.S., a new, more specifically a New York resident, to even get access to this stuff is very difficult. And so I think there's, there's so much category error, there's so much semantic error, and there's so much just friction in terms of getting involved in things. It's still pretty early days. And you know, yet again, another example would be this: the, the, the 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 EFT, that's just the Bitcoin EFT. It's just such a bad product. I don't know. I don't know why anyone would buy that. It's like the great the grayscale fund. I mean, these things trade at massive discounts. Okay. Massive discounts. They're awful, awful products. I mean, why would you do that? I mean, I mean, I, well, I get why, but I get why people would issue it. But like, I, I mean, I guess if you're a, if you're a stock portfolio, it's a way to get exposure. Shouldn't you be? Shouldn't it be trying to train? And I guess that's, yeah, maybe it's an argument. You say that's another example of regulatory arbitrage where there's these things that exist that have a certain value that basically either shouldn't exist or shouldn't have that value. And the only reason they do is because there's a regulation that stops certain classes of people doing something more efficient. Well, we'll pivot on to climate now and just to, but just to take sort of the segue there. I only found out yesterday that if you under under the forty under the forty act, if you uh, say own a mutual fund, you can only have a maximum of ten percent of the commission of your positions in commodities. Yeah, we used to run a we used to run a forty act fund, so I'm I'm very familiar with both forty act restrictions and uses restrictions. Right, and I can I can make I can give you a really bloody good argument that in the in the era of climate change, which with all due respect to our crypto friends, is as a narrative insignificant compared to what we will see in the next three decades with sustainability, decarbonisation and energy transition. Yeah. Is the number 50 trillion, 100 trillion, pick your number in terms of what will need to be done to, to save the only planet that we that we have. Putting that in that context, being limited to only 10% commodities in that environment, because let's face it, I run a climate research business. Um, if I had called it a commodity research business, I'd have no subscribers. Yes. But effectively, <laughs> yeah. it's, the, it's the same thing, right? So but talk, talk a little bit about the climate transition, how you're thinking about this structurally. And thank I'll probably say thank God that you're, you're not a 40-act fund, so you could probably have more than 10% in commodities if you choose to choose to go down that path. Yeah, it's, it's, actually it's, it's tricky. It's one, you're talking about before about, for me, trying to sort of think of new things and how painful that is and how slow I, I, I go with that. This is a great, this is exhibit, well, not A, but exhibit, you know, probably Z, there's probably 26 of them, but like where I'm sort of, this is, I get it's important, but like how do I, you know, how do I, how do I get involved in that? And then again, through that prism of not wanting to be the idiot of the card game, how do I get involved in it in a way that's consistent with what I think I know how to do? So for me, there's a couple of things going on here. There is the tactical side of things. So if it is a listed future or a listed stock or a listed something other, I can trade it. So should I be spending more time thinking about aluminium or copper or some of these other, you know, even, even energy, which I've made a complete hash of this year, some of a trading standpoint. So can I shoehorn that as a theme into my existing tactical trading uh, process? I think the answer to that's probably like yes. So so can I shoehorn that into my existing process? And the answer to that is in some cases, yes, so I will do so. So then another question would be, are there opportunities within my universe of things that I know how to do 
that are suddenly presenting themselves? And I would say the answer to that is yes, too. So I've spent a lot of time in the last six months on California carbon, for example, and that's a fascinating market. And again, it's not an easy one to, there are futures, but there's also a physical market. And I won't bore everyone with the details, but to, to get access to the physical market, you have to you have to apply as an individual, then as apply as a company, you have to get approved by the state of California. And it's a it's a bit of a bit of a process. So I've gone through all that. And we're we're at the point now we can deploy capital there. There's other carbon trading schemes being set up in both Singapore and Australia. So, you know, how do we get involved in that? And again, not easy. It's not, you know, it's not a question of you know calling someone up and saying, hey, buy me some carbon credits. It's it's a long, it's a long, arduous process, and there's a lot of friction and it's a pain in the ass. So so, you know, but that is a, again, that is a, so if I think about the sort of the universe of things that exist that I can use my current process for, do, the new universe of things that will exist that I can also use my current process for, get set up. Then it becomes, then, then, then the, what I'm struggling with even more, I think, and we've, again, this is what comes to surprise you, we've talked about this. So do I then need to change my process? I do I need to think about other ways that I can deploy capital or something to better fit with what this new reality might be? And that's where I'm really struggling with at the moment in terms of in that. So I think about you know, my experience in the last couple of years, and this gets back to what I was saying before about that transition from, uh, from uh, hedge fund to family office, it gives you a lot more flexibility. I can do what the hell I want. No one's telling me I can do whatever I want. But, you know, or should I? And if so, how? So I think about, again, crypto, not to keep coming back to that, but the way I did that, for example, was I allocated a, a very small amount of my capital and I thought about it through a benchmarking type process. So if I think about my background as a macro trader, there's already any benchmarking. I mean, you can trade where you want. It's all leveraged and off you go. Whereas at the other end of the extreme, the other end of the spectrum, there is a, a, an equity mutual fund that is very benchmarked or an ETF. So somewhere in the middle, I found somewhere in the for, so for new things for me, having something in the middle is has been a good sort of intro, if you like, a good segue. That being said, I'm still doing it through a very traditional asset-based asset allocation framework. So I'm saying, okay, I've got to vote. If my capital is 100, I'm going to allocate, I'll start with 25 basis points to crypto. And then oh, this feels okay. In a year, I'll do 50 basis points. And then next year, I'll do 100 basis points. And then next year, I'll do 200 basis points. But it's still very much in that sort of, uh, you know, stay in my lane and also feels comfortable from a risk management standpoint because, uh, so with, with something like crypto, oh, sorry, with something like climate, you know, this gets into, uh, and, and as you have written extensively about and actually gone even further in terms of actually building the portfolios around this, you know, what we're talking about is now a more thematic capital allocation framework. Is, so climate, really, climate, is climate an asset class? Yes, is, is crypto, climate an asset class? Is crypto an asset class? Is crypto right? an asset class? Now, I can make a, 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 a much easier argument that crypto is an asset class than I can make as than climate is an asset class. So maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I mean, but you know, crypto is a whole new thing, whereas climate is just usually, with the exception of something like California carbon credits, is just taking existing things and packaging them up as, as you do. So then the question becomes, is climate an asset class? I would say probably no, but should I be thinking about the way I allocate capital to a more thematic, I guess, regime or structure or whatever word you want to use for that. Then the question also becomes, well, then as a, as a, as a sub-question of that question, if the answer to that question maybe is yes, if I should be thinking about things more thematically, how does that then dovetail with what I'm currently doing, which is thinking about things in a more traditional allocation framework? Do I carve something out? Do I, do I just tack it on top with a bit of leverage? Do I, you know, what do I do? And I, I haven't really come up with, frankly, a very good answer with this. And, and where, I'm, where I'm wrestling with this most, and maybe we have this conversation six months' time and have a better answer, is what if I'm wrong? What if I'm, what if climate is not 
And I know, and obviously, it's probably not, not something you want to bring up, given you clearly believe that it is. And I, I lean that way too, but what do I know? Maybe I'm wrong. Like, so. Well, just, but just on that point, so there's a belief if you, again, if you go and work at a, at a Millennium or one of these big platforms, at the core is their risk management process, right? So that's the unchangeable thing. That's given in their universe, right? And they'll make the argument that around them, themes will come and go, strategies will come and go. But as long as that that rigidity of the core is of the core of risk management remains, then the firm is going to be okay. And that and that could well be the case, right? But I look at something like uranium, for example, where there are evangelicals across the hedge fund universe who love uranium and everything about it. And I'm and I'm I'm not quite the card carrying advocate, but I'm I'm a big proponent, right? So if you have, let's say you work for, and you have a three a three percent stop and you've got something like uranium and all the stops around uranium, right? That trade with volatility that where a three percent stop is inappropriate, right? What, what is wrong? Is the three percent stop wrong or is your narrative wrong? Well and again, I, I tend to think in that environment that there needs to be the whole thing about risk, the risk profile being all-seeing and all-knowing, and thou shalt not thou shalt not change that. I think that is, I think, li- very limiting in a world where the mega thematics of, you know, we'll put crypto as a mega thematic: China, climate, digitization, de- demographics. Where, where those mega themes, maybe they're more important than the risk management techniques that apparently are underpinning you. Yeah, I think, well, uh, is, it an either, is it an either or question? I'd argue that it's not. And I think that the reason why I would argue that is that, and this is why I'm struggling with this so much, is that if you think about sort of risk management, if you have, if you work at Tudor or Millennium, you've got a very clear set of rules. In terms of you know what they are, well, that's actually, you have a clear set of maximum rules. Chances are they might be a little less than you think they are, but like you, you, you can build a portfolio around that. If you have investors in terms of, in, even if you happen to have your name on the door, there's still a clear set of rules there because you have their preferences in terms of where they will redeem. And you have also what you tell them. So you sort of, and you know that if you trigger that, they'll probably redeem as well. So you have a, of a set of a set of rules around that. Where it gets a little harder, although I'd argue it's not massively different, is if it's your capital, or if you don't, if you, you know, if your capital or you don't have those strictures. So in terms of let's say you work somewhere where it may be more of a real money type and you're working in the endowment or something, where maybe there might be some rules around that, but but it's probably a lot looser. Well, not well. It's not. I don't really imply endowment risk management's are loose, but I mean that in terms of in that there's less of a. You might have a, you have to fund a five percent draw every year, but beyond that, sort of make a twenty year decision sort of thing. There's also no. There's also no leverage. Generally, no yes, leverage. Yeah. So again, leverage. But I think what still, what still governs you, and you're always going to have this, is where are you going to cry uncle to a certain extent? And what I mean by that is in terms of in that you know, I think about my own situation now. Okay, I can you know, take whatever risk I want in terms of in the, you know, and I could sort of say, well, I'm not going to have a, I'm not going to run a leveraged portfolio, but I'm going to take whatever risk I want and I believe in this and happy days. Do I re- am I really going to be able to do that? Do I really have the intestinal fortitude? So let's say, for example, I allocate, and once again, not to pick on climate, but let's say, for example, I really believe in climate and I'm not going to have a leveraged portfolio. I'm going to go out and invest 100% of my money in, all these things that I think will do well if the climate theme works. And let's say in three years' time, they're down 50%. Well, I really, am I going to, what am I going to do then? You know, the, I know, well, the, I know the right answer is though. just to stay the course, but like, will I really be able to do that? Right, but here's, no. you, you've hit the, no. you've got the crux of the problem with, with, with investing as a whole is you, you, might, you can't control, look, you can never control outcomes, but more importantly, you can't control the time frame when a, when a strategy plays out, right? So that's why so that's why a climate strategy, I believe, should be an unlevered strategy, right? Because again, you I don't know. Put this way, what may not work in three years? Like so, solar stocks were down peak to trough thirty five percent at some stage this year, right? 
does anyone doubt the future of the solar industry as a buy as an integral part of what we're going to see in the energy transition, right? Yeah, I, I believe it. So, but how long that takes to play out, how big the excesses get, how how sort of under how big the drawdowns become, you can't control that, right? You can control your reaction to it. That's what you can control. You can control that. So, so you can't control the drawdowns, you can't control what happens, but you can control what you do when something like that happens. And that's that's so that's sort of the issue I'm wrestling with in terms of in that I, I well, and the other, the other thing I'd say about solar stocks, have you got the right ones? I mean, like, let's say, for example, like two, 20 years ago, you're like, the future is social media. I'm going to buy MySpace. I'm going to buy Friendster, Facebook. You'd be 100% right and 100% wrong. And you, you see that all the time. I mean, like you saw what just happened, which we talked about this the other day. So it just happened in rates markets. So there's always like literally right now, there's always enormous losses from people in rates markets. And I would pretty much guarantee that 99% of those people were actually bearish rates and they all lost a ton of money when rates went, sorry, bearish rates, bearish rates price, bullish rates. And it's all about trade structuring, all about trade structuring and sort of stop loss slash risk limits. That's the issue I'm having right now where how do I, and I, I don't have an answer to this, unfortunately, you know, to be continued, but how do I, so if I do think this is something and I sort of do think this is something, what's the best way for me to allocate capital to it way that when it goes wrong or when it has a drawdown or when it, you know, I'm not going to worry about it at all, or maybe, maybe I'll add, and also in a way that avoids the MySpace problem. And I don't have a, I don't have a great answer for that just yet. Well, but I'll give you I'll give you a good example of this. I I am utterly I'm an utter card carrying advocate for the rise of electric vehicles. I have no doubt that in ten years' time, ninety percent of the electric vehicle companies that exist today will be bankrupt. Right. Oh, you saw that. Well, you saw that actually with with uh, combustion engine vehicles back one hundred and twenty years ago. That's exactly what happened. Radio, radio, yep. railways. Yep. It's all the same stuff. Yep. All the yep. Same so- so yeah, so I don't have I me. Mean, so to be continued, I don't have a don't have a great answer for that yet. But you know, to me, that's the you know that's the way I'm thinking about it, at the very least. And <laughs> maybe I'll come up with something. I don't know. Yeah. To, be, to be continued. Okay. Right, we'll get you out. Well, let's get you out of here. Let's leave it on the optimistic note. What's the best thing about running a family office? Just being able to focus on what you like doing without without I wouldn't say without distraction because that's not right. I mean, I take my kids to school and there's. You know, the phone just rang and someone's vacuuming outside my office. So there's, there's always distractions. But again, just the, the distillation to the essence, if you like, of things that you like to do and the, the, the negation of things you don't. I've seen you through thick and thin and all of this. I couldn't be happier for where you are right now. And we'll chat again very soon. Cheers, mate. Thanks so much. Thanks, mate. See you. Bye.